Uh, but anyway, jumping back into this particular class, uh, I've, I've actually been listening to some things. There's a Lutheran podcast I listen to called Just and Sinner, and uh, the host of that podcast, he's got pretty probably the the best known Lutheran podcaster. But the Justin Center podcast, he's he's the president of the seminary. He's, he's like 10 years younger than me, but he's already the president of the seminary. Uh, his name is Jordan Cooper. And he's doing a series right now on near-death experiences and demons. So far, he's got four parts going. So it just so happens that I'm listening to that while I'm doing this. And uh, Jennifer Behan sent me another uh, podcast that I've not finished yet. Uh on uh, demons that uh, some guys out of Concordia, Fort Wayne, put on. In the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, there are two big seminaries, the one in St. Louis, which is one of the more evangelical, kind of, uh, by by Missouri Synod standards, progressive or liberal side. It's not liberal, but you get the idea. And then Concordia, Fort Wayne, which is the super conservative Missouri Synod guys. So they put out a podcast on demons as well. So it just seems like this is something that's kind of around people want to talk about. Um, I didn't record last week, so I just want to review very quickly what we talked about last week to get everyone caught up to speed, and then we're going to dive into more of the historical angle of all this. <clears throat> but remember that God is God, man is man, angels are angels, and demons are angels. Okay, So there are categories of creation. There's God as creator, and there's everything else. Within the creation category, there's man and angels, two different two different types of beings. Okay, we 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 came up with the slogan last uh, class. Uh, instead of saying heaven got another angel today, uh, paradise got another human being today, uh, right? Because human beings don't become angels when they die. They're different orders of creation. In fact, just this morning in the nine o'clock service, I was thinking. Uh, as we were saying the Apostles' Creed, and we changed that from Jesus descended to the dead, and then because it kind of brought to mind in Psalm 16, which we read this morning, we'll chant at the 11 o'clock service, <coughs> it talks about Sheol, which is the place of the dead. It's not hell, it's the place of the dead. So these are, and, and so one of the, one of the things that that whole conversation brings up is kind of if you, if, if, if you could visualize in a sense, and of course people used to visualize it this way, we maybe understand the universe a little bit better so we don't do it, but at the very top of the sort of nature of creation would be heaven, right? And the very bottom would be hell. So, so in my reading of the scriptures, below heaven would be paradise, okay? Paradise, which is the place of the dead for good people, <laughs> uh, to put it bluntly. Uh, and then, uh, Sheol or Hades, is the sort of place of the dead for bad people, again, to put it very bluntly. And in the middle uh, is earth, okay, so to speak. It's, 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 the, it's the consciousness that we understand right now. And so <coughs> when you talk about to the dead and Sheol rather than hell and heaven, it's a reminder that we live in a plane of existence that won't be the plane of existence that we'll always experience because there is going to be a, the day of judgment is when the gates of heaven and hell are opened and all the demons and the devil will be vanquished to hell and those who have been saved in Christ will enter into heaven fully with glorified bodies, by the way. And even when I say enter into heaven, Revelation talks about it like new heavens and new earth. So even, even our vision of heaven usually is incorrect. Uh, because what we're really going to be entering into is creation restored, 
or creation as it was before the fall. Another interesting thing that came up recently was, uh, in, in fact, it comes from this podcast, and uh, I've never heard this or thought of this this way, but it was extremely helpful. As you probably know, in conservative Christian circles, there is a big debate about the age of the universe, right? Uh, 6,000 years old, young earth, versus 14 billion years old, old earth. Okay, people have different, it comes back to kind of Genesis, uh, six 24-hour days. And one of the arguments for the young earth position is that when Adam and Eve fell into sin, okay, that brought death into the world. Okay, all kinds of death. That brought death into the world. That includes the leaves on the trees that become brown. That includes predation and prey, right? So the kind of the theory is that there couldn't have been for billions and billions of years death, even the death of a single cell, I guess, that turns into multiple cells. I, I don't, I'm not great with all these arguments, but the idea is that there could not have been death until the fall, and so the fall had to happen very early, and the universe has to be young. Um, <clears throat> but Dr. Cooper's argument is that actually the, the fall of Adam was not the first fall, right? It was the fall of the angels. They fell first, and that is what led to the possibility of death and so on in the world. So that sort of opens the door to there being an old earth. It, the old earth theory sort of gains credence, right? So you could have predation and prey for billions of years, which would be necessary for all the animals before Adam came along, right? You could have the seasons, right, where you have trees growing, which is a cycle of they die and then they, you know, they the next season comes and shedding and molting and leaving and all those sorts of things. You know, I mean, what would the great white sharks have had to eat, right? Without, if there, if death wasn't even a possibility. So, so the, if you, you could understand there is the fall of man, but there's also the fall of the angels, which led to the demonic realm, which leads to death in the cosmos, right? And so that was a, that was a really interesting kind of idea. And it does tie into, to that debate a little bit. Um, and that could have happened before the, no, I take that back. I was going to say that could have happened before the creation of the universe, but, um, I guess it could have, I guess God, <coughs> let me just do one big cough and get it all out of the way. <coughs> I guess it's possible that God could have created the angelic realm before the universe. I don't think we actually know. Uh, the, the answer to that. And so the fall could have, could have happened. They all could have existed timelessly, but I don't think that's the case. I think that all of creation exists in time and only God exists or could exist outside of time. Because God existed tripersonally before time existed, right? Okay. Um, that comes up. That's relevant. Uh, in my sermon, I'll mention a conversation I had with a young college student this week who argued that the universe was infinitely old and infinitely large. And so I tried to tell her as nicely as I could that that's actually absurd and no one actually could possibly believe that. Because uh, if time goes infinitely into the past, then we would never show up to today. Um, so anyway, yes? I think it was uh, Einstein who said Yeah, well, it's really impossible for us to imagine a timeless existence because we are rooted in time. And whatever Einstein was right or wrong about, I think we all agree that something like time and space 
are essentially the same thing. They're just two sides of one coin. I don't understand how that is the case, but they say it is. But let me, so different categories of creation, very important. Um, one of the big questions that we have to answer is the, um, is the fact that demonic activity has been, uh, witnessed or experienced before the Hebrews, before the Jews, before Christians, does that, does that indicate that there's this, uh, uh adaptation of other cultures' ideas into the Hebrew understanding of demons, which would sort of negate the truth claims that Hebrew people have and eventually Christians have about demons? Or is it an example of uh, the universality of it, which just gives more credence to the fact that demons really do exist? As an example I gave, people will say, well, the the flood in Noah's Ark, in Genesis uh, Genesis 6 to 9, well, that that couldn't have happened because every culture has that story, which obviously proves that this is just the Hebrew version of that same story, that same flood narrative, that same flood myth, right? And I would take the opposite approach. Aha, every culture has that story of the flood, therefore that story must have happened and must have either been worldwide or must have been so large a local event that it seemed as if it were worldwide. So... Um, so you could say the same thing about demons. Oh, demons can't possibly be true because everybody talks about it. On the other hand, you could say demons must be true because everyone talks about it, right? Um, so we have to think about that and the whole sociological approach and borrowing from cultures is a big conversation in this whole thing. Um, uh, I, I, there's clearly a downplaying of the demonic in some ways in our own day. Just yesterday, though, I listened to some interesting commentary on the Travis Scott debacle. Everyone knows the trampling of people at the event, and there's all this debate raging now about whether it was actually a demonic event, and those dead were part of a plan to sort of offer uh, blood sacrifice to Satan. And so, you get into all these conversations about like, well, and actually, if you if you if you look at all the marketing, if you look at the stage that was built, the pyrotechnics, uh, the tr- shirt that Travis Scott was wearing, where it's a portal, where one end people go in as people, and the other end they come out as demons. I mean, y- you can definitely do some sleuthing and be like, and so there's actually there's no question that it was demonic marketing. There's no question whether he actually believed it or not uh, is a whole other thing. Whether it was divine to be a blood sacrifice is something else. But I think the uh, this particular commentator's opinion is one I would certainly agree with, which is that whether it was actually explicitly demonic or not, it was sort of capital D demonic, capital D devilish. It was definitely demonic in the sense that you had people so worshiping power and fame and notoriety that they're willing to kill other people with no concern for their health and welfare at all, just trample them all to hell, you know? Uh, there's no question in that sense it was so ungodly that you could most definitely call that entire event uh, demonic. And I would say, by the way, don't ever go to events like that. Uh, Chris, there, there, it, it, no, no Christian with any self-respect should ever have bought a $300 ticket to that, that, that horrible, horrible, horrible event. <laughs> no short person either. <clears throat> okay. Um, <clears throat> so the difficult question that we have is to sort of, uh, what role demonic, the demonic realm plays in our normal everyday life? Uh, let's see here. Let's move quickly. I need to start getting into things. Uh, I, I mentioned that I'm interested in this class because I'm curious as to whether or not the, the way I'm curious as to whether or not demons can do superficially good things to entice people into the occult. Um, <clears throat> because that could get us into a house divided situation where why would a demon do a good thing like cure a disease unless the demon has the longer goal of enticing us into believing occult things, right? 
Um, so, for example, think of a witch doctor or voodoo or something like that, which is, by the way, very common in many parts of the world. Um, <clears throat> you know, and what happens when someone goes to a voodoo or a witch doctor and they have something cured? You know, it's a supernatural event. There's no good explanation for it. It seems like the witch doctor really did bring about a cure through an incantation and a spell for a person. Maybe the demon will allow that to draw the person more into voodoo, which is an explicitly demonic and evil activity, right? Um, but it's a question of whether a demon can actually accomplish something that we would declare good. And then I think we need to really think about what good means, right? Is, is, is physical healing good? And the answer might be something like, well, it depends. You know, it, it, the answer could be something like, well, it's neither good nor bad. It, it, it just is. Because at the end of the day, we're all going to die. Okay, even if we're healed of one particular thing, our bodies are still in a process of decaying, and we're still going to die. Um, <clears throat> and I think that this, I actually think we're in a, in a society that actually, in a weird way, we glorify death through a lot of our media, but in a weird way, I think we have an irrational fear of death, which leads to, uh, you know, absolute panic uh, in certain situations. Okay, spiritual warfare is a reality. And so there's that. Now, this particular, <coughs> this particular book, <clears throat> again, it's, it's sort of a boring textbook. It's what a professor would assign on a class in demonology. It's called Essentials of Demonology. It's written in the 1940s, okay, uh, <clears throat> by an English guy that no one had ever heard of and no one has ever heard of since, okay? Um, but this really, this particular book looks at uh, the, the sociological, what I call the sociological and the sort of historical approach. So let me read a little bit from it. This is about the pervasiveness of the belief of demons. He says, In our study of the beliefs of primitive peoples, we have seen that a belief in demons or evil spirits has been and still is characteristic of all the known peoples of the world. All right, so that means any, anyone doing a sociological history of humanity, this is what they find. This is what they find. Primitive animism presupposes the existence of a multitude of spirits whose character is not clearly defined. The spirits of enemies and of strangers were naturally, in view of tribal outlook and law, conceived to be hostile, and since the number of known friends is very small as compared with all the people who stand outside the limited circle, the number of hostile spirits was believed to exceed by far the number of friendly and helpful spirits. In other words, generally speaking, when one looks at Ancient civilization and their experience with the demonic, there were only, there were, it was believed that there would only be a few friendly spirits and there'd be a lot of malevolent forces, right? Because now animism is the, is essentially communication with dead persons. Okay. Uh, and <clears throat> in fact, that's not a very good description of it. Uh, I, I kind of have a sense of what it is. It actually has many forms. Let me give an, something like the day of the dead. Right, if you you know, if you really go whole hog into the what is it called? Who speaks Spanish? Dios de los Muertos. Um, that I've argued crosses a line in and it has animistic background. Okay, where there's such direct interaction with spirits that it really is wrong for Christians to participate in. Um, but again, the dem demonic presence is not a Christian only thing. Okay, it's not like Jesus shows up and all of a sudden there are demons. Okay. Every culture had, had some sense of, of, of evil or benign spirits, uh, as part of reality. 
He says this, uh, there are traces of a belief that such dangerous animals as the fierce tiger and the subtle and venomous serpent are themselves demonic creatures, or again, the vehicle of an evil spirit other than human. We shall see presently that a belief in such demonic animals is prominent in the religions of Babylon and Assyria. <clears throat> there are several traces of similar belief in the Old Testament. Now, in other words, it was widely believed that there were animals that were essentially evil, okay, that were essentially demons in physical form. And so this comes up particularly with the serpent, okay? Y'all might know of a story in the Bible that involves a serpent, yes? Okay, and it's really quite uh, common now for people to say, oh, that wasn't the devil, it was a serpent, okay? Um, in fact, I know that Pastor Peterman said that many times. I, I, I heard him say that many times. He would say, eh, it's not, it's, it, it, quit saying it's the devil. The, the text never says it's the devil. And guess what? That's true, right? But actually what you find is that it was widely believed that serpents were, in essence, demons in, in physical form. So the text never needed to say. Now, whether it's the devil with a capital T and D or a demon um, is maybe up for debate. Uh, because one of the one of the texts we'll look at is how Satan as a character did sort of develop over time. Um, it, it, you don't you don't and, and you know for example in the Hebrew word that we get the word Satan from is Ha Satan, which simply means adversary. Okay, and um, there's even arguments that that these adversaries were not fallen angels quite yet, but they were sort of instigators. Um, and so there, there, there are different sort of theories about the use of that particular word and how Ha Satan became capital S Satan and the prominent sort of arc demon sort of gained rise through the centuries that in some ways that's a creation. I think some of that's really irrelevant to be honest because so long as you have a demonic realm, it really doesn't matter who's at the top of it, whether the serpent in the garden was Satan with a capital S or just some demon. The point is that they were tempted and fell into sin. But yeah. Well, Satan, say, say, so the, I mean, Lucifer, uh, I, I can't remember. It's in, it's in this book and we'll get to it. Um, some of this is literary, right? The idea that the words that we use and the idea of an arc, sort of an arch demon come later. I'm trying to remember where Lucifer is. Lucifer only has one or two mentions of the Bible. And actually, that's something to keep in mind about all this, is that the Bible's not explicit about the demonic realm. There's a lot of sort of hints and isolated verses, but there's a lot of debated verses as well. And so a lot of what kind of ends up getting constructed is just that. It's a construction. So uh, people have a lot of theories about, you know, uh, well, who's the, you know, like ranks of angels and like military ranks almost and things like that. That's really overdone. We know very few sort of named angels of any kind on either side and what their ranking might be. Yes? In the book of Job? Well, that that's the prominent use of the Hebrew word ha-satan. Or Hasatan, you know, I'm saying it wrong, but um, which means the adversary. So it just it. So if you really, if you just if you just 
transliterated, it would be the adversary of God or an adversary. Um, but you wouldn't find an, for an English translation that says capital S Satan. There's, there's a few steps in translation and literature and theological choice being made. Cause the, the, the text may not indicate exactly, this is the argument. The text wouldn't indicate the supreme demon in the rank. It wouldn't, it just doesn't suggest that. Just like Genesis 3 wouldn't suggest that either. I'm not downplaying any of that. I'm just saying that some of those are later literary sort of interpretations. Arguably, that could actually make the demonic realm even more terrifying, right? If it wasn't Satan himself, the devil in Genesis 3, but a mere demon, right? One of many, many, many demons. Same with Job, right? The, then the, the, the world of the demonic actually gets a little bit more subtle. It gets a little bit more sneaky. And if you've read the screw tape letters, which, uh, we're going to have as our book study pretty soon, that's exactly C.S. Lewis's approach. It's the, it's the, the devilish nature of the subtlety of the demons that is so terrifying. Okay. But I saw another hand up. Yeah. Mm hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that's right. We we do have you know Paradise Lost and and all, everything that came as kind of a result of that, um, or the Dante's Inferno. Maybe I might be confusing literature. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Well, one thing we'll look at um, is. That there, there was a, at least a 200 year period in the Middle Ages of what we had in the 80s, like satanic panic. Okay. Um, they had that for sure. I mean, there is, there was a probably 300 year period where, you know, all the stuff Monty Python makes fun of, you know, burning witches and witch hunts and all that. Man, that stuff was real. Um, in fact, we'll, uh, look briefly at King James book, same King James Bible. Okay the Scottish king of, of Britain or England or whatever you call it, um, who wrote a book called Demonology. And that book led to the deaths of many thousands of people accused of whip trap. I mean, basically what the what Holy Grail makes fun of came from King James' book on demonology, uh, in large part. So there was definitely periods where people were going around looking for things, and they were sort of largely, again, these extrapolations, and they kind of missed the the truly demonic ways that, you know, the true, the, the, the more subtle ways that demons work. Um, the Arab jinn, J-I-N-N, that might be a phrase you've heard before. The jinn, uh, is essentially a demonic realm or demons in the Arab world. That's the Arab, Arabic word for it. I'm not a, I'm not a student of the Quran or the Hadith, but my, uh, understanding is that, um, that the jinn is a, is a figure that comes up over and over. I think maybe Muhammad, uh, does battle with the jinn or something like that, but don't quote me on that. Let me just read this. Arabia, the early home of the Semitic peoples, quite naturally presents numerous parallels. Of course, you understand Islam comes 600 years after Christianity. Um, so I'm not conflating Islam. Um, I'm, this, this predates that to Arabic culture, okay? But Arabia, the early home of the Semitic peoples, quite naturally presents numerous parallels to the demonic beliefs which survived among the early Hebrews and later Jews. The usual Arabic term for demons is jinn, a collective word which probably originated 
uh, I'm sorry, probably originally signified covert or darkness. Uh, according to Arab belief, demons abound everywhere, even when they are not perceptible by the human senses. They dwell in places where they were formerly populated but are now desolate and believed to be bewitched. The Arabs believe that the mysterious buzzing, humming, or, or whistling noises that are heard in the desert were caused by demons. They are therefore cautious about whistling, lest they should attract them. I remember uh, I was in college once and I was whistling inside and we had this Russian piano teacher and he was like world-renowned, I don't know how he ended up at our little school, but anyway, super imposing guy, right? Kind of barely spoke English and he like looked at me dirty when I whistled. He's like, that's bad luck to whistle inside, never whistle inside. So every time I whistle inside, I think about that, you know, <laughs> wonder if I'm conjuring demons or something. But uh, but it, that, that is kind of interesting, right? So the Arabs probably, I'd be curious to talk to a Muslim person. Hey, do you ever whistle? You know, because they very well might say, oh, no, no, that's, that's the demonic realm. Um, but, but that is a, that quality, that belief that demons were everywhere was, and, and, I mean, you could argue still is, but certainly was, uh, the belief of the Hebrew people. And I would argue that Jesus believed that, assumed it. Now, I think it was, maybe a little bit more tamped down in Jesus' day, but that, I think, that would have been closer to the worldview that Jesus held than ours, right? Which is that, you know, the demonic, it's in that haunted house, or it's in that possessed person, okay? Um, so, this was interesting. This Tell me if there's any story that this might remind you of. Demonic activity, this is again the Arab jinn, okay? Demonic activity is most intense from twilight to cockcrow. During this period, the demons, it is said, surround the house and injure all those who fall into their hands. Children especially are in danger when they leave the house at night. At cockcrow, the power of the demons comes to an end and they return to their usual abode. Any story in the Bible that might remind anyone of? What's that? When Peter denied Jesus. Makes one wonder. It makes one wonder if this would have been a commonly held belief among the Jews as well. And so these denials take place during this demonic realm, right? But from that time on, the trial moves on and Jesus is actually doing heavenly work. I don't know. Might be reading too much into it. But if it was sort of this pervasive idea that at cockcrow you were sort of safe from the power of demons, it's kind of an interesting Kind of an interesting um, spin on it, a little bit. Um, according to Arab belief, jinn are not pure spirits, though usually they are invisible. They are able, in fact, to become visible or invisible at will. They assume many different forms, especially those of snakes, lizards, scorpions, and other creeping things, but also larger animals. Now, again, this is important because this was a belief that the Jews also would have partaken of. Probably. This is the argument, that they came to believe that as well. And you get the word uh, seraph, which is a flying serpent, right? Seraphim uh, is the plural of that. Um, various operations of demons. Let me just read this. Everything that appears to be contrary to the natural order of things is ascribed to their activity. For instance, it is they who are responsible when the cattle refuse to drink when driven to water, 
or when a woman miscarries or is unfruitful. In particular, they are held to be the causes of all forms of sickness, disease, death, and especially of madness. So again, this is, this, this is going to put us at that point where we will eventually have to ask the question of, well, is this the explicit act of demons, or does it even matter? Because the fact is, there's a pre-fall world, and there's a post-fall world. Okay, And everything after the fall in that post-fall world is influenced by demonic powers, whether explicitly through something like a haunting or possession, or just through the now, the now natural course of things. Okay, I put the word natural in quotations because the actual natural course of things is found in Genesis 1 and 2. That is the reality that God made for us, and that is the reality we'll have in the new heavens and new earth. That is what paradise, heaven, will look like. Really, I would say heaven, uh, because there will be corporeal once again. Okay, Um, so in other words, do we believe that snakes themselves are demons slithering on the ground? To that I would say no. But when a snake bites a person and kills them, you could argue, you could make the argument that that is a result of the fall, whether the demonic fall in the demonic realm or the fall of man. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a test? None that I know of. However, however, this does now lend more credibility and weight to one of the gifts of the Spirit, which is starts with a D. Anyone? Discernment. Discernment. What did Paul mean when he said discernment? I don't think he I don't think he meant to be able to parse 16th century English literature. Um, although that might be a useful skill if studying the demonic. Um, it was discerning spirits. This is a gift. This is a gift. I think people have the spiritual gift to know. Uh, when, when there is something truly ma- ma- malevolent going on, in a way, even above and beyond the sort of normal fallen nature of the world. Sure. I'm sure I have. I'm sure some in this room are. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm trying to to I want to be clear that what I'm what I'm trying to do is is to um yeah, so there, there's a lot of Christians now, I mean, probably more in the charismatic circle. And again, we'll, you know, I'll, we'll look at an essay briefly where this is an argument made in 1910 that the tongues movement, right? This is Pentecostalism, which began really with the 1906 with the Azusa Street Revival, um, is itself a demonic enterprise. And, um, you know, even then, even at the Azusa Street Revival, people were barking like dogs, walking around on all fours. They still do that today. They call it holy laughter and all this kind of weird stuff. That is like totally demonic stuff. But yeah, so there are these Christian movements where it's like they open themselves up to the Spirit. They call it the Holy Spirit, but actually what I think they're doing is opening themselves up to a kind of a direct the direct demonic world, and they're confusing that. Now, again, why would why would the Spirit do that? It's back to the old question, right? Well, anything to draw you into the world of the occult, the devil's in it for the long term, okay? The, the devil's playing a long game with you. If it takes you 50 years, takes him 50 years. He doesn't care. Um, and yes, and so there there is a hyper-fascination and a lack of confidence in God 
in these movements. That's really what disturbs me, is that they're constantly looking for demons, and then they do empower people who claim to have the gift of discernment. Um, and you can have situations where one person discerns this and one person discerns that. Well, guess what? God doesn't speak with a forked tongue. Okay, so you can't have two different... God can't be speaking two different ways, two different people. So a lot of that does need to be tamped down, and, and one of the big questions with this, now I'm going to get into some hot water, uh, is... The question of, can a Christian be possessed by a demon? Okay, And I think Jennifer is exactly right. I think the answer to that is no, because God doesn't share. Okay, The person who is a regenerate believer in Jesus Christ is possesses the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit isn't going to be elbowed out by a demon. And so then the question is, well, yes, but what of all those exorcisms of people who are Christians? Yeah. What about... what? Yeah. There are many. It's yeah, it's like a well, like the latter rain movement would probably be one. The charismatic movement at large would, in some sense, be one. New Apostolic Reformation. Yeah, that's a big one. What's going on at Bethel in in Reading? Hillsong. They just do rock concerts. Innocent rock concerts. I don't know what kind of getting off the thing. Yeah. When they boil it down, you will get, you know, instruction on how to respond to things and how to deliver it to whatever. It's it's it it's kind of becomes an obsession. They they it's like they take this one narrow aspect of our Christian faith and they make it the whole of Christian faith. And um so that's kind of more on the charismatic side, but I wanted to pick on the Roman Catholics, which is, I think, what would really get me in trouble, because Roman Catholics are the ones with the developed exorcism rites, right? And, they, and they, they're the ones in all the movies. Um, and so then the question is, and the reason I say it's controversial is because if we're, if we're going with the thing, we're going with the statement that a Christian can't really be possessed— then what about those who are adult Roman Catholics who claim to be possessed? Now, by the way, even in Roman Catholic circles, and I do agree with this, they make a distinction between something like possession and oppression. So demonic oppression, and there's even another lesser category, but basically the de- when you're oppressed, it's the demons bothering you, but possession is full-on you know, embodiment. And so then it, you get into the question, and this actually does play a very big role in history, because at the time of the Reformation, uh, exorcisms and healings were used as proof that your beliefs were the right ones. Okay, So Protestants were going around, see, we can cast out demons. We have the Holy Spirit. We're the true religion. And Catholics were like, see, we cast out a demon. We're the true religion. We have the Holy Spirit. This actually happened. People were in the crossfire of these kinds of events. Um, so the reason it's controversial is because what is it that makes somebody a Christian? Um, and it's ultimately... <sighs> repentance, trust in Jesus Christ solely for, for the forgiveness of your sins, trust in God for, as the provider of all good things, acknowledging that you're a creature and God is the creator, humbling yourself before him, all those sorts of things. But in the Catholic Church, you don't tend to sort of hear that as much, right? It's like, well, you've been baptized and you're still in the sacraments and everything's fine. We're the one true church and the priest is you know, good with where you're at. But the question is, you can go through all of those processes but never have really become a regenerate person, like never actually become a follower of Jesus. You're superficially on the top of things. So the definition of what a Christian actually is actually really comes into play because 
a Catholic who has not really accepted Jesus Christ over and above even his own church, right, for the forgiveness of sins, I would argue, is not a Christian, and therefore, even though they're participating in the church, they are ripe for possession, and that is how Christians can be possessed. But I would argue Christians are not being possessed. Now, that's controversial, of course, because I'm at, what I'm actually saying is that there are people participating in the Roman Catholic Church who are not Christian, right? But um, but there are people who participate in the Lutheran Church that aren't Christian too, okay? So I'm not—but the, the difference is we don't do exorcisms, right? And so this particular question doesn't come up of whether a— uh, whether a spirit, whether, whether a spirit indwelt person can also possess a demon. So my answer to that would be no, but I would also say that the demons can pester us, uh, a lot. And so we're, we don't, we don't avoid that. So there's still interaction, um, in that world. Um, I know we're out of time. Um, but those are some of the questions I did want to get to eventually anyway. So things will go faster on the back end. Okay, well, I think we'll end it there. Any last thoughts or questions? Um, everyone say hello to JJ and Tyler. Uh, JJ uh, is in the Adidas outfit. Yeah. JJ, wave your hand. That's JJ. And then Tyler. Alistair's friends had a sleepover last night. <clears throat> Maybe that excuses Alistair's tardiness, but I doubt it. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that we can gather. Give you thanks for our worship. Keep us safe always from um, any tempter that would draw us away from you and bless us in our time of worship today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.